In every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. Fun, 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 fun. Light speed to the wondrous and wonderful. Cover is not the book, so open it up and take a look. Ah, if it isn't the only bookworm in town. What's that word again? Inspired. I have to sing. I have to play. The music, it's, it's not just in me. It is me. We're happier when you don't sing. Welcome to Notably Disney your ultimate podcast covering Disney music and books. I'm Brett Knackman, your host. Here we dig a little deeper and explore the great wide somewhere about everything under the Walt Disney Company umbrella as it pertains to tunes and writing, from the theme parks and television screens to the Broadway stage and the silver screen, if it relates to anything Disney songs, soundtracks, books, articles, or other things that you can listen to, or read about involving Disney, we'll examine it here. We are traveling back in time on this episode of Notably Disney, about six decades, more or less, as we explore a new title called Walt Disney and the 1964 to 1965 New York World's Fair Travel Magic, which focuses on Disney's relationship with the Ford Motor Company for the famous exposition at that really amazing event that many of us have learned about a little bit via videos and artifacts over time. However, not until now has there been a real in-depth examination of this notable relationship between two American powerhouse corporations. And I have to say that Andrew Keist's new book is uh, fantastic, really interesting read where you're going to learn all about not only the development of the fair, but also some major social issues unfolding at the time pertaining to transportation and politics and urban design and so much more. And gosh, it's just an incredible amount of detail and labor that he put into this. And I think you're going to really enjoy our conversation, and I would certainly encourage you to pick up this book as well. So let's get right into that dialogue with author Andrew Keist. Andrew Keist is the author of Walt Disney and the 1964 to 1965 New York World's Fair Travel Magic, which is the latest in a series that explores the monumental pavilions that the Walt Disney Company created for the unforgettable American exposition from the 1960s, of course. And in this title, Andrew discusses the partnership between Ford and Disney that would provide the foundation for future attractions like the People Mover and the primeval world scene on the Disneyland Railroad, as well as very importantly, uh, it represented one of the most notable pavilions at the World's Fair. This is a very rich 
an impactful book that chronicles a piece of Disney history that I don't think many folks truly understand, uh, but now they do, um, so thanks to this book. Welcome to Notably Disney, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Well, I would love for us to begin with just a little bit of context on who you are. Uh, certainly you are no stranger to the Disney book landscape with some of your previous titles. So if you could talk a little bit about your previous work um, and then what ultimately motivated you to develop uh, a line of books around these signature Disney attractions from the World's Fair. Sure. So my, my background is actually that I am a high school history teacher um, in central North Carolina. Um, and so history has always been my passion. Um, I've always been interested in writing and am a lifelong lover of Disney history and Walt Disney World. Um, in 2015, I published my first book, which was the first in my historical tour of Walt Disney World uh, book series. Um, and that series actually examines the historical accuracy of many popular Disney World attractions like Pirates of the Caribbean and the Jungle Cruise before it went through its recent refurbishment and the Country Bear Jamboree. And that was really fun to write, uh, but it was more of a travel guide rather than a piece of what I consider to be historical scholarship. Um, and so a few years later, after I had written the third volume in that series, uh, my wife and I were driving down the highway and I had been talking about something regarding the New York World's Fair and Disney's role in it. And uh, she turned and looked at me and said, well, has anybody ever written any books about the New York World's Fair and, and Disney's partnership with the fair? And I said, well, not that I know of. I mean, there's been stuff in books and there's been stuff published on websites, but there's no definitive book about Disney's role in the World's Fair. And so she says to me, well, why don't you write a book about the World's Fair and, and Walt Disney? So, um, you know, this is a topic in Disney history um, that is legendary. You know, a lot of Disney fans are familiar with the fact that Disney had a role in the New York World's Fair, um, but there's not a whole lot of information that's out there um, other than the Disneyland TV episode, um, Walt Disney Goes to the New York World's Fair. Um, there's a few things that Disney has put out through D23 and um, through the Walt Disney Family Museum. But other than that, there wasn't a whole lot of scholarship out there about it. Um, and so back in probably 2017, 2018, um, I began the long process of figuring out how I was going to write a book about Disney's role at the New York World's Fair. And initially it was supposed to be a single book um, about all four attractions, uh, the state of Illinois' Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln, the Ford Pavilion's Magic Skyway, uh, General Electric's Progress Land, which we know as the Carousel of Progress, and Pepsi's It's a Small World, uh, which was a attraction that actually benefited the United Nations Children's Fund, also known as UNICEF. Um, and so as I went through that process, uh, I actually realized that there was so much content that I couldn't possibly do this in a single book. Um, I actually went and visited the Illinois State Archives in Springfield, Illinois, and went through all the documents that they had about the Illinois Pavilion at the New York World's Fair and realized that each pavilion needed to have its own volume in the series. Um, and so 
my first book in this series uh, was called Great Moments. Um, and it kind of talks about the backstory of the New York World's Fair, how Disney got involved, um, and then kind of tells the story about the design of the state of Illinois pavilion and Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln. A couple of years later, uh, 2019, it must have been the summer of 2019, um, I was visiting family up in Michigan and made a side trip to Dearborn, which is north of Detroit, and visited the Ford Archives, uh, the ben Benson Ford Archives there, and dug through all of their archives and found lots of great material uh, about the Ford Pavilion and the Magic Skyway. In fact, uh, I ended up finding um, four four-inch notebook binders full of documentation everything from memos written by walt and wet enterprises to purchase orders from the ford motor company to uh, slides and images and blueprints uh, and so this whole process has been a lot of fun i've learned a lot of disney history that i had no idea existed um, and i've really gotten to connect with some great people um, throughout the entire process well, it's abundantly clear, Andrew, that there was enough material to warrant its own book, um, certainly in the case of Travel Magic, which focuses on the Ford Pavilion. I guess I'm wondering in terms of just the time that's that just really ex is explicitly shown here, that the time that you invested to gather such rich detail um, to really tell a, a narrative not only about Ford and, and Disney, but also just so many different topics from politics and urban design and American history and economics. How did you uh, handle the development of, of these alongside your full-time role as a, as a history teacher? Well, so, you know, summer vacation is a wonderful thing when you're a teacher. You know, you get two and a half months off and you know, the, the conception is that teachers spend all that time at the beach or at the pool or relaxing. Um, and for me, that gets old very quickly. Um, and so I like to spend my summer vacations every year writing or working on a book. In fact, around the same time that Travel Magic was published, I also published a uh, first volume in a biographical series about Walt Disney, um, which is called the Early Life of Walt Disney. It's published by Pen and Sword Publishers out of the United Kingdom. Um, and so, you know, summer vacations have been very busy for me. Um, the actual uh, process of accumulating my research takes about a day and a half when I'm at the archives. Um, I literally have a scanner app on my phone and I spend eight to 10 hours in these archive libraries, just snapping photos and making scans of as many documents as I possibly can. Uh, the next step in that process then is printing those documents off because while the digital world is great, I am an old fashioned historian and that I like to put my hands on the physical documents, make annotations and notes, highlight things. Um, and then I organize those in uh, my binders in chronological order. Um, I also go through and try to identify for each book in my World's Fair series a central theme. So with uh, my first book in the series, Great Moments, you know, the theme was kind of the, the beginning of the New York World's Fair, as well as civil rights, uh, because Abraham Lincoln being instrumental uh, during the Civil War and awarding freedom to uh, the African-American slaves, but also the World's Fair coincided with the American Civil Rights Movement of the 1960s. 
Um, in fact, there were a lot of uh, protests um, against discrimination and segregation at the New York World's Fair. And so that first book talks a lot about that. Uh, the second book, uh, Travel Magic, which focuses a lot on uh, the Ford Motor Pavilion as well as Chrysler and GM, uh, focuses on just the American transportation system. The 1950s and the 1960s were instrumental in the growth of the Eisenhower Interstate Highway System. Car culture was huge. Uh, fast food restaurants and, and auto tourism were uh, in, incredibly popular in the United States at this time. And so, you know, when I, when I did the research for that, I really wanted to make sure that I was incorporating a lot of the information that kind of surrounded the history of automobile culture in the 1960s. In fact, it's, it's fascinating to me. I had no idea, but the Ford Mustang was actually unveiled for the very first time at the New York World's Fair just days before the fair opened in, in the spring of 1964. Um, along with that, Robert Moses, who was the president of the New York World's Fair, was a leading bureaucrat in both New York City and New York State. Uh, his nickname was the Master Builder, and he actually was very instrumental in building many of the interstate highways and kind of getting rid of some of the train systems throughout New York City and New York State. And so I talk a lot about his role with that and how that actually um, not only encouraged many of the automakers to join by building pavilions at the fair, but also uh, was kind of um, turned a lot of fair visitors and locals off to these automobile pavilions because they saw them as sellouts to the things that Robert Moses had done uh, to and around their homes in New York City. What's really just impressive as a reader is, as you were speaking to really clearly just now, is the amount of historical context that you lend to that really situates the Disney component, because I feel like maybe it's not until the, like page 30 or so that you even communicate anything about Disney. It's really just establishing the setting, the time period, the social issues, and uh, consequently, as a reader, it, it enables me to feel like I have that sense of place and some of the players involved. So that background that you establish, I think, really helps ground the, the rest of the work. Yeah, and that's something, you know, as a history teacher that I try to do with my students a lot is in order to truly understand history and how and why things unfold, you have to understand what's going on beforehand, right? So you know, unless we really take time to examine the importance of the automobile in the 1950s and the 1960s, you're not really going to understand why it is that GM had the number one most popular attraction at the New York World's Fair. You're not going to understand why there was such a big rivalry between GM and Ford at the fair. You're not going to understand why uh, the, the invention and unveiling of the Ford Mustang was so important you know it was it was a car that was marketed towards the common man when many of the other automakers at the time had a lot of high-end expensive vehicles and so you know this this is a pavilion at the world's fair that is set in a very specific time and place that understanding the bigger story that's happening just makes the entire experience and the entire book that much richer and easily able to understand. Absolutely. Well, and that's where I feel like I benefited from you communicating about the 1939 
World's Fair and some of the innovations unveiled there and the, the role of the Futurama Pavilion among others, because it really showed how just the landscape had evolved so significantly in the past, in the two decades or so that elapsed um, from that World's Fair to the subsequent one. And then ultimately this trio of car competitors, so to speak, um, when we're when we're at the 64, 65 World's Fair. Yeah, I mean, so so we had the 1939 New York World's Fair. Uh, Robert Moses, when he initially had um, envisioned the 1964 World's Fair, um, decided that he was going to build that fair on the same grounds, uh, Flushing Meadows Park, uh, located in Queens, um, on the same land that the 1939 World's Fair was built on, um, in order to try to take advantage of what was already there and then expand that into a chain of parks. In fact, uh, Robert Moses envisioned that what he would ultimately call the Robert Moses Park would end up being larger than Central Park and more prominent. Um, and he kind of staked that on the great amounts of profits that the New York World's Fair in 1964 would make. But unfortunately, there was not as many visitors as what was initially anticipated. And so many of that uh, funding didn't come through. Uh, but, the, you know, both World's Fairs uh, were very important in terms of the innovations that came out of these pavilions. You know, a lot of people don't realize that many of the things that we have in the United States today, part of our national consciousness and understanding of history, products that we use on a daily basis were initially introduced at the New York World's Fair. Uh, things like cotton candy and popcorn and hot dogs and Dr. Pepper and peanut butter, you know, all that stuff had its introduction at various World's Fairs throughout American history. Um, at the 1964 World's Fair in New York, uh, the Belgian waffle made its introduction. Um, in 1939 uh, World's Fair, uh, in terms of just attraction technology, uh, the GM Pavilion, the Futurama One Pavilion, uh, had a, a piece of technology that was called the Polyrider. Uh, and essentially what yeah. this was, was the GM Pavilion, you would go in and you would sit in a chair almost like a Omnimover attraction at, at Walt Disney World. So like the type of chair that you might sit in in the Haunted Mansion, for instance. Um, and it would basically be one big long chain of ride vehicles. And you would look down over top of dioramas of large cities um, and different types of futuristic transportation technology. And when your, your seat or your car would get to a certain point, there would actually be an electronic relay that would trigger a certain piece of narration that would be spoken. Um, so rather than it being a single track of narration, um, you would have different tracks um, so that when you arrived in that place, at the correct time, that narration would come through the, the headset in the back of the chair. So it was really interesting, some of that technology. Um, you know, the 1964 New York World's Fair um, in the Magic Skyway Pavilion, um, they used actual Ford automobiles as the ride vehicles. Now, these were gutted, right? They took out the gas tank. They took out the engine. Um, they, they took out different pieces in order to modify it. But you would ride in an actual 1964 Com Ford Comet or uh, Ford Mustang. Um, and so... 
on the bottom of those cars, they would actually attach what was called a platen, which was a piece of plywood um, to the bottom of the vehicle. And then they would implant or um, not implant, but they would embed um, tires in the track of the Magic Skyway that were constantly spinning so that when the car would come over the top of those tires, it would actually pro propel the, the vehicle forward. Um, and that technology would actually go on to inspire the Wedway People Mover at Disneyland and ultimately the Tomorrowland Transit Authority at the Magic Kingdom. Now, while the, the TTA today uses um, magnets, electromagnets to drive it forward, originally when uh, the Disneyland version of the People Mover was opened, um, I believe it was in 1967, although I may be mistaken. Oh, you're and, right. You're right, Andrew. <laughs> yeah, they they used the same system that they used at the New York World's Fair um, with the Magic Skyway of embedding tires in the track. And as the vehicle would come across it, they would propel those vehicles forward. So, you know, it's it's very interesting and very um, important to to understand that the things that were introduced and invented for the world's fairs still play a major part in our lives today. Yeah. Thank you so much for that context. I, I, I'm glad listeners can appreciate too, that some of these innovations that may not necessarily be technology related, but rather some of the food that you mentioned too, that, that was really emerged in this space and, you know, kind of going into um, some of the specifics in the, in the book, it's just, there's a wealth of detail here. And I think anybody who is interested in Disney or car culture or world expositions, or, or even some of these broader topics, like, like I mentioned, urban design and politics would, would find this to be a fascinating read, but you offer such a, such a rich level of detail that I think enables us as the readers to glean the intricacies associated with creating a pavilion and um, even at times like you talk about the budget like certain budget items and developing the Ford pavilion I guess I'm wondering like you know you're talking about scanning these documents and and looking at historical records and all of these different materials how do you as the author determine what level of detail is going to be viable and ultimately important to share in ultimately more of a mass market book yeah, you know, that's, that's, there's a fine line there, you know, as a historian, um, you want to make sure that everything that you include is going to push your narrative forward, right? You don't want to include anything that's frivolous information. You don't want to stop, you know, an anecdote halfway through because you're missing documents and you certainly can't fabricate information uh, in order to kind of drive your story forward. So, you know, you, you got to come up with that that central narrative that you're telling in whatever story you're you're relaying, whether it's a book or a article or a magazine entry, a blog. You know, you got to make sure that that you have the documents to support that. Um, now, with my book, you know, it's it's a niche audience. You know, you, I'm, I'm writing for the general public. But more often than not, the general public that I'm writing for is either going to be Disney fans who are interested in learning about a specific topic, or in the case of this book, um, people that um, are interested in the history of the Ford Motor Company as well. 
Um, in my previous World's Fair book, I had a lot of people that purchased my book that lived in Illinois that were interested in Illinois history. And because I had written about the Illinois State Pavilion and Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln, a lot of my readers were from central Illinois. Um, and so really, you're, you're kind of wanting to make sure that you are writing for that general public that isn't necessarily uh, history focused, not somebody who is necessarily going to want to focus on all the little minutia of historical details, um, but rather somebody that is a lay reader um, who might not have that historical context. But it's also something that you want to do to the point where you're not coming across as insulting. Um, for example, if I'm talking about the American Revolution, I'm not necessarily going to say, well, the Declaration of Independence was signed in 1776. You know, you don't, you don't want to come across as patronizing, but at the same time, you want to make sure that it's accessible uh, to all readers. Um, you know, one of the things that was really interesting and almost laughable to me is that there's a story in this book about a faulty elevator. Um, there was a, a ride vehicle that they were transporting up to the track. The track was on a upper level of the Ford Pavilion. And so they were transporting a vehicle up to the, the ride track and the elevator uh, mal malfunctioned and it was supposed to have a safety relay and that malfunctioned as well. And so this brand new Ford convertible falls out of the elevator, gets stuck between the ceiling and the elevator and gets crushed. Um, and so throughout this book, there's kind of this, this strain that I go through every once in a while where I'm going back to the, the scandal of the Montgomery Elevator Company and this damaged Ford and them trying to figure out, well, who's at fault? You know, was it the people that installed the elevator? Was it Montgomery Elevator Company that that is at fault? Is it the Ford operators who were operating the elevator? Was it the people that were loading the vehicle? And so it it just got to the point where I'm telling the story and I'm I'm finding all these documents. You know, I've even got photographs of the damaged vehicle. Um, and it was just really fun and, and like I said, almost laughable, uh, just the, the level of pettiness that some of these executives stoop to in trying to determine, well, who's going to pay the insurance claim uh, in this case. So that's just the kind of stuff, you know, that I'm really kind of coming across as I'm looking at these documents. Sometimes you come across a purchase order that seems a little redundant to a purchase order that you referred to earlier in the book. And so you just kind of skip that over because it doesn't necessarily drive that narrative. Right. Well, and there were, there, certainly there's a, a common, uh, a common focus in, in the book in terms of focus on, you know, illustrating the development of the pavilion, but you, you throw in lots of little interesting side notes and, and stories that emerged like when the, when the ride was the ride was first premiering, and you you have a, a funny anecdote with was it Buddy Hackett and Ford's grandson just kind of mm -hmm. traversing the pavilion uh, a little bit inebriated. Yes. <laughs> um, so I mean these these stories that I feel like typically would never have surfaced unless in the in the context of of a title like this I think adds a lot of um, just uh, immersion into what it would have been like to be there on that opening. Yeah, and then I'll tell you, my absolute favorite part about writing these World's Fair books is that I have been incredibly lucky both times um, that I have found employee manifests, meaning that I have found lists of the young people who worked both in the state of Illinois Pavilion 
and the Ford Pavilion. And through uh, a various uh, methods of online detective work, I have been able to track down several of those young people who are still alive today. They're in their 70s and 80s. Um, and I have been able to reach out to them through writing of a letter sent through snail mail. Um, and they call me back and I have these conversations with probably a dozen uh, elderly ladies and gentlemen um, about their time at the New York World's Fair, talking to them about what they did at the pavilion and who their friends were, what they did in their spare time, um, telling me about their families. Um, they've sent me photographs of them when they worked at the World's Fair in their uniforms. Um, in fact, I have gotten close to several of these um, elderly people and we exchange Christmas cards and they send me pictures of their grandkids and I send them pictures of my children. And, you know, it's just been really great not only to kind of add the human element of these stories to my books, um, but to just develop these amazing relationships with people that I would have never met had I not been able to do this research to begin with. That's just beautiful. And I think it really speaks to the power of reaching out and just following your instincts and curiosity because you never know what you'll uncover. And certainly it sounds like that really has extended outside the context of, of even authoring this book. Yeah. I mean, it's been great. And, you know, there's been stories, um, you know, like in, in the great moments book, you know, I had a, a lady that I talked to Miss Shirley Medley um, and she talked to me about um, kind of her job and how, how she would um, hand out uh, souvenirs at the Illinois pavilion and, and literature about the state of Illinois. You know, I talked to uh, Mr. Vince Curry, um, in my travel magic book. And he talked to me about how he sang in a quartet or a small choir at the New York World's Fair uh, during the early days of the Ford Pavilion and how he actually dressed up as a cheerleader um, when an NFL player came and they did. So they, the, an NFL player visited the Ford Pavilion, the New York World's Fair, and basically organized an inter-pavilion rivalry football game between the Ford Pavilion and there was another pavilion, I don't remember which it was, uh, but he had two teams of young uh, hostesses from these two pavilions that basically faced off in a football game against each other while he acted as coach. Um, and Mr. Vince Curry, uh, who was a host at the Ford Pavilion, dressed up as a cheerleader in one of the outfits of the hostesses and sent me a photograph of him uh, basically doing a toe touch in the air during this football game. So it's just been really fun just to kind of see that there's more than just the development and the operation of these pavilions. Um, you know, it's the human story of here's what normal people were doing, or here's how these young people interacted with each other during the fair and what impact it had on them. That just really brings that story to life. Yeah, I, I can appreciate that. And it makes me think too, to the section of the travel magic book where you talk about the training associated with working the pavilion and it very much felt reminiscent of of you know just the the process of what it must be like to be a disney cast member but but also just you know trying to be as helpful as possible as knowledgeable as possible to direct people to the right information or if they didn't well to try to to really seek that out yeah and you know it's interesting it's a good transition, I suppose. But, you know, a lot of a lot of Disney fans, you know, like I said earlier, they, they understand and they recognize that Disney had a role in the New York World's Fair. But I, 
and maybe I'm in the minority of, of this, but I had always assumed that Disney operated the, the pavilions or the attractions or that they had Disney folks that were there. And that actually just wasn't the case. Um, you know, the Illinois, the state of Illinois pavilion was owned and operated and, um, the hosts and hostesses were employees of the state of Illinois. Uh, with the Ford Pavilion, everybody that worked at the Ford Pavilion was a Ford employee. Uh, Disney developed the attractions and built the set pieces, and that's it. You know, at the state of Illinois Pavilion, Disney created the Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln show. They actually collaborated by. Uh, working with some of the individuals from Illinois to even write the script for that. Uh, at the Ford Pavilion, um, Rolly Crump developed a a small show that was in the queue of the attraction called the Auto Parks Harmonic. Uh, and John Hench did a lot of the concept art. And then the Disney, or at that time it was the Wed folks, uh, now we would call them Imagineers, uh, they developed the Magic Skyway attraction. They built the dinosaurs out in California and shipped them across the country. Uh, but for the most part, once the attraction was built, Disney was kind of hands off. Uh, in fact, uh, Ford even employed their own maintenance men that did the upkeep for the attraction uh, and the vehicles to make sure that they were in good operating condition. Um, you know, Ford had the final say on what this attraction was going to look like. Um, in fact, there was a, um, a company that was run by, uh, a guy named Walter Ford, uh, and that wasn't able to determine whether or not he was related. I would imagine that he would be related to the Ford family in some fashion. Uh, but he had developed a concept for an attraction for the world's fair. And, uh, when the Ford company saw Disney's pitch, they turned, uh, the, the pitch by the other company down. Um, but, you know, the pavilion was designed by Welton Beckett, uh, who was a personal friend of Walt Disney. Beckett also designed the Progress Land Pavilion for General Electric. Uh, but, but Disney didn't design the pavilion. Um, you know, it was constructed by a different company. You have uh, uh, different companies that did the interior design and, and provided things like the batten rigging that were used in the attraction, the lighting and the sound. Um, in fact, Disney didn't even um, compose some of the music within the attraction that was um, hired out by Ford to a different company located in California called the Institute of Audiographic Arts. Um, so, you know, Disney didn't have as huge of a role in these pavilions as what I think many people assume their role was primarily to develop the attractions. And once that happened, Disney kind of stepped back and let, let the, co the companies kind of control the attraction themselves. The only uh, exception to that of course, is the Pepsi pavilion, uh, which was the, it's a small world attraction um, that was uh, operated by Disney. In fact, they had people in, uh, character costumes that would entertain people in the crowds while they waited in line uh, for that attraction. So, but I mean, other than the, the Pepsi pavilion, um, Disney had very little role in the actual day-to-day -day operations of those attractions. Yeah. I value you illustrating that distinction. One of the, one of the takeaways too, that I gleaned from um, the latter chapters of your book was that, you know, Disney Imagineers were very, 
very attuned to what was happening across the fair and in different spaces. And I think you reference that um, they were just conducting observations all the time. Imagineer Ken O'Brien was touring the World's Fair and he, he came across the Pepper's Ghost effect, if I'm not mistaken, that ultimately would be uh, translated into the Haunted Mansion. Yeah, so, you know, they were constantly at the New York World's Fair. And part of that was Walt wanted to keep an eye on his stuff, right? The whole, the whole reason why Walt got involved in the New York World's Fair in the first place, not only because he had some good relationships with guys like Robert Moses, who was the president of the fair, and Walton Beckett, who was ar- architect of some of these pavilions, was that he really wanted to kind of test the waters of what he called the more sophisticated East Coasters, right? He wanted to see, is there even any interest to build an East Coast Disneyland? And so when word came that there was going to be a World's Fair in New York, Walt was very interested to see uh, how this would all work. Not only that, but uh, he liked to take advantage of other people's money. So when he realized, hey, I can develop some attractions that'll be paid for by a major corporation like Ford or GE or by the state of Illinois, I can use their money to develop technology that I can then use back at Disneyland. Things like audio animatronics, things like um, different special effects that are used in the attractions. Not only that, Disney uh, would give these corporations the options to actually bring their attractions back to Disneyland and sponsor them there, which is why Disneyland got the Carousel of Progress and Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln and It's a Small World. Um, But Walt and his Imagineers were always out at the New York World's Fair. They would hop on Walt's private jet and they would fly across the country there and make observations. They were observing things like cues, right? That's kind of where the switchback cue got perfected. They're looking at things like Uh, the technology that would be used. They're looking at how audio would be used. um, And they're kind of taking a lot of those those things that other people developed, bringing them back to California and then honing them for their own attractions. Which it seems like that's just a very effective tool um, because it's that notion of just constant improvement of systems and ultimately not only to enhance efficiency, but also quality and that level of immersion. I mean, you mentioned that just what, what was so, um, even though this was before the 1964 World's Fair, but you mentioned the, the polywriter earlier and how that kind of established that foundation of what onboard audio would be like. And I was absolutely fascinated to, to learn that in the Magic Skyway attraction that guests could choose the language of the, of the audio. Yeah, so that was during the first season only. Okay. Um, when you would get onto your automobile, um, they had a special uh, radio that was inside the car. Um, in fact, the transmitter for that radio was located um, in in the trunk of the car. And what would happen is, is that you would get in and you would get to push a button, almost like a preset button that would determine which language you could hear the narration of the attraction in. Um, now that was only during the first season uh, because during the second season, um, Ford realized that the narration was too dry and not as entertaining as it could be. And so right. they actually um, asked Walt to record a narration for the Magic Skyway during the second season. And so at that point they did away with the narration options because they wanted 
uh, Uncle Walt to kind of lead you on a more personal and humorous tour through uh, through time uh, to kind of see how man had developed transportation. Right. No, and I and I could appreciate the the choice and uh, the direction that they took, but just the notion of them offering that choice early on not only felt feels a bit innovative, but it makes me think of even riding something like Spaceship Earth at Epcot and and having that option where you can choose on the panel, um, just that notion of guest interactivity and and also mindfulness of of how individuals you know process information, but depending on you know what language they use to communicate. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you gotta you gotta remember that people are coming from all over the world at this point. Um, and so you've got people coming from China, you've got people coming from Germany and Switzerland, you've got people coming from South America. Um, and so you want to make it as accessible as possible, you know, especially with as uh, brutal as the competition was uh, between pavilions, not even just between GM and Ford, but between other um, corporations as well. So you want to make it as personable and personalizable personal person personalizable that's not a word <laughs> it As sounds possible. like it sounds like interventions andrew <laughs> yes um or even like you know i think of horizons yeah i grew up in the in the late 80s and early 90s and so this this opportunity that you had on horizons at epcot when you could choose your own ending and they had three very simple options um but in this case you got to choose the narr- narration for your your six person vehicle that would kind of walk you through the attraction. So it was, it was very innovative for its time. Um, but also made it, uh, you got to keep in mind that there's constantly surveys that are being done at the world's fair as to, you know, which pavilion are people visiting the most and how long are they spending there and how much money are they spending there? And you know, how does it compare to other pavilions? So there's, there's that constant trans, uh, competition. And so the goal is to make it as accessible and enjoyable to all audiences rather than just a small subsection. Absolutely. Well, and it sounds like that's where Ford really capitalized on the the, the winter between the seasons of the of the World's Fair to, to make those changes. You mentioned the narration earlier. I think I also remember earlier in the book, you mentioned that did Ford hire its own like market research firm to conduct some of those surveys? Well, it's actually interesting. Um, so initially, um, there was a market research survey that was done by an organization called the ERA. Um, and um, Sharon Disney's hus- future husband, um, I don't remember his, his first name, but the last name was Lund. Uh, he actually um, was part of that organization. But then in uh, there were other organizations that would do um, market research. Ford certainly utilized uh, some of its subsidiary organizations. It used its own advertising firm uh, just to kind of look at, you know, how successful is our our advertising uh, in this case. And, you know, advertising was a huge part of the New York World's Fair anyway. You would find advertisements on the sides of taxi cabs and uh, broadsides in the tunnels of subway stations. There would be uh, advertisements in uh, brochure maps that are passed out throughout New York City. Um, many of these corporations had their own publications. So Ford had what was called the Ford Times that would be mailed to anybody who had purchased a Ford automobile from a Ford dealership in the United States. 
uh, and that would have updates and stories about the Ford Pavilion and the Magic Skyway. And so, you know, anything that these companies could do to drive interest uh, to their pavilions, but you got to keep in mind too, that this isn't just an entertainment opportunity for people. People didn't go to the World's Fair uh, just to be entertained. They went there to be educated. Um, and so, you know, while Ford didn't sell much of anything at the Ford Pavilion, it might inspire somebody to purchase a Ford automobile when they returned home rather than a GM or a Chrysler automobile. Well, along those lines, it made me think of even just the extent that you describe the unveiling of the Ford Mustang and how that was a game changer for the industry, more affordable, more of a family vehicle. But you also talk about how I think there was a whole part of the campaign where they had just those vehicles scattered across different holiday inns around the U.S. Yeah, so you know they would they would put uh, Mustangs after they had unveiled them. Um, they would put Mustangs all across the United States. They had them in the lobbies of Holiday Inns. They had them in shopping malls. Um, they would have only one Mustang at different Ford dealerships. And there's actually a couple of different sections in my book where I talk about um, just the craze when the Mustang was unveiled, the people that are literally knocking down doors at dealerships or um, men that are driving semi trucks that aren't paying attention to where they're going because they're too busy staring at this brand new shiny Ford Mustang in the showroom window and they accidentally crash into buildings. And uh, you know, just all of these crazy stories of things that I had no idea, partially because that was 25 years before I was born. Uh, but just all of these things about the Ford Mustang um, and even the development of it, the, the number of different names that they had for it and why they chose the Mustang versus other names. Um, but I don't want to give all that that away. You know, that's that's a fun story. So you're just going to have to pick up the book to uh, find out more about that. <laughs> what a good tease. Um, Andrew, I would love to kind of just make sense of, given that we're talking about a pavilion that existed nearly 60 years ago now, certainly there was a lot documented that you captured through um, the archives that you visited and other means. But in terms of filmed footage of the of the Magic Skyway ride of the of the pavilion broadly, how were you able to ascertain such vivid details given that this wasn't necessarily captured in the same way that it would today with the influx of, you know, video cameras and using our cell phones and other means? You know, that's an interesting question. Um, so 1965, I believe it was, uh, the Wonderful World of Color, did, it was part of the Disneyland Anthology TV series. They actually did an episode. It's on YouTube. If you haven't yes, seen it, yes. I highly, highly suggest that you go and check it out. It's my absolute favorite. So good. It's basically Walt takes viewers on a tour of um, the different World's Fair pavilions. Um, and he even shows you know, them working on stuff, which is all staged, of course, but them working on stuff in... Uh, the warehouses of Wed, you know, the show opens up and he's standing there with a riding crop and he's talking to Huey, Dewey and Louie, which are Apatosaur animatronics from the Magic Skyway attraction. Um, and that that show basically shows, you know, different bits and pieces of the pavilion. So it goes through and it shows actual archival footage of great moments with Mr. Lincoln. And it shows bits and pieces of um 
the carousel of progress and has Wallow Rogers, who's actually in the process of programming the father figure in the very first scene of the attraction. And then at the very end of the attraction, they actually take you through the entirety of the Pepsi-Cola It's a Small World attraction. Uh, but one thing that they really don't cover a whole lot of is the Magic Skyway. Um, and I've never really been able to figure out why that is. Um, there's hardly any footage online, whether it's on YouTube or even through the Ford archives of the Magic Skyway attraction. Um, there are several images um, that I came across that were in the form of slide photographs of the Magic Skyway attraction. Um, I have a very rough blueprint of the attraction. And so I was able to kind of piece together where um, different things were in the attraction. Um, one thing that I did have access to that Disney put out several years ago, and by several, I mean sometime within the past 10 years, was a five CD set called Walt Disney the 1964 World's Fair. Yes, I own that too. It's amazing, right? Yeah, it's got a, a wonderful color um, booklet that kind of goes through just a very brief overview and shows some, um, some photographs and concept art of the different attractions. And then it's actually got a CD for each of the World's Fair pavilions that Disney was involved in, um, as well as a bonus disc for the Progress Land pavilion. So Progress Land actually has two separate CDs. Um, but on the Magic Skyway uh, disc, it actually has Walt's narration um, and then also has um, him narrate, or uh, the um, behind the scenes of him actually recording the narration and kind of his comments um, as he's narrating it and flubbing up and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so I was able to use that to kind of walk myself through, okay, where am I in the attraction? You know, what comes after what? Um, you know, the, the struggle of trying to piece together this attraction with very few images or archival footage of the pavilion as a whole. One of the things that I struggled with was placing, okay, where was Rolly Crump's auto parts harmonic show you know was this down in the main foyer was it in the product salon at the end of the attraction um and what i was able to kind of figure out was that it was actually upstairs after you came off of the uh, moving sidewalks so you'd go through a series of tunnels um, that had some scenes on the side of them kind of like what space mountain does after you get off of space mountain they have those futuristic scenes as you're walking up the ramp um, they had a similar thing as you would go up to the loading area for the Magic Skyway. And once you would come out of those tunnels into the, the main switchback queue um, upstairs, that's where Rolly Crump's Auto Parts Harmonic Show was. But I would, wasn't able to kind of figure that out unless I looked closely at the different angles within the photographs that I had that were taken by both Ford and Wet Enterprises. Isn't that incredible, though, to think that millions of individuals passed through this pavilion and yet, you know, because of just the issues with documentation, it, it still requires such deliberate work on part by you and and perhaps others in, in making sense of other uh, components to, to be able to really have a, a clear vantage point, so to speak, of, of what this experience entailed. Yeah, I mean, it's it was just been incredibly fascinating. You know, it's 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 very rewarding for me um, as a writer and as a historian. 
Um, and if I'm being completely honest and selfish, you know, I wrote this book for me and I get to share it with anybody else who's interested and wants to read it. So putting this book together has been like a puzzle, right? You get that little, that little hit of positive reinforcement when you make these connections of, oh, that little uh, semi-circle there on the side, that's, that's where the moving sidewalk uh, ended. So it must mean that the auto parts harmonic is upstairs at the end of that moving sidewalk. And so just being able to make those little connections has just been really fun um, and really rewarding to kind of understand and recreate this piece of lost history. Because at least for me, that's what the Ford Pavilion and the Magic Skyway has been. It's been lost history. You know, everybody knows about the General Electric Progress Land. And everybody knows about It's a Small World because it's so ingrained in the Disney experience today. Not as many people know about Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln because that's on the West Coast at Disneyland. But we have the Hall of Presidents in Florida. And so everybody kind of has a, a, a concept or a notion of that. But we don't have Ford's Magic Skyway. We, we haven't ever had it. We've had bits and pieces that have kind of cropped up in different places, but unless you understand, you know, the historical implications of the attraction and what the attraction originally entailed, you're going to miss out on the fact that, oh, that dinosaur is modeled after the same one that was at the World's Fair. Um, and so it's just been really interesting for me to kind of learn about something that I knew absolutely nothing about. I, you know, other than knowing that there were some dinosaurs in the Magic Skyway attraction, I knew nothing about the ride or about the Ford Pavilion itself prior to starting this process of research. I, I can I can definitely hear that. Well, and, and to think too, that at least even if it's in its entirety, Magic Skyway doesn't exist in the parks, parks that at least there are elements that have ultimately influenced components of the parks, right? So like Primeval World is, is a just a beautiful time capsule of sorts um, in, you know, along the Disneyland Railroad from Tomorrowland to Main Street USA. But you're only going to get that if you're at Disneyland. And, and more than that, it's still, it's still not an, a complete uh, replication of what Magic Skyway was, even if there are components there. Yeah. And, you know, that's the nice thing about, um, you know, Imagineering never lets a good idea go to waste, right? That's kind of the catchphrase when it comes to Imagineering. You know, they always are recycling stuff. They're always reusing stuff. Um, you know, to your point about Primeval World diorama, um, you know, Walt Disney World had those exact same dinosaurs or rather dinosaurs from the same molds from the Disneyland Railroad and from the New York World's Fair. We had it at Walt Disney World up until recently. Um, yeah. Rip Ellen's energy adventure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. That was the, the, uh, the two dinosaurs that were fighting up on the rock on the right-hand side, just before you went into the volcano, you know, that that's the same scene that you would see at the magic skyway, which is the same that you would see in, in Disneyland. You know, we, we still have the Tomorrowland transit authority, um, which is a similar system, even though it's magnets now, instead of wheels. Um, and then, you know, you had, uh, back when Epcot first opened, you had the World of Motion attraction. You know, that was based heavily upon 
some of the early scenes of the Magic Skyway attraction as well, especially the stuff with the cavemen and the futuristic city at the end. Um, you know, that's not there anymore. That's now test track. But YouTube is a wonderful thing, especially Martin's videos where he goes through and shows the history of older attractions. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Those are so immersive and well done. I love them. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Andrew, I'm, a couple of questions before we wrap up. You, you briefly mentioned that fantastic five-disc um, soundtrack for the Walt Disney and the World's Fair. Uh, George Brun's role was pretty profound with um, the Ford Pavilion. Could you briefly speak to all the different tracks that he uh, composed for this? And ultimately, what I absolutely love is the Serengeti Serenade would ultimately manifest uh, as the theme for Jungle Book. Yeah, so George Bruns has very distinctive music. I don't know if it's, you know, the the clarinet and just that kind of almost loungy, smoky jazz music that that he would compose. Um, but like you said, he composed uh, several songs for uh, the Ford Pavilion, uh, but his music was not actually prominently featured in the magic skyway there was there was a couple tracks that were on the attraction itself but most of his music that he composed for the ford pavilion was in the international gardens which was a right. series of diorama displays down on the first floor of the ford pavilion that you would go past as you were in a switchback queue before they put you on the moving sidewalks that went up to the to the uh, second and third floor um and so many of those songs um were either part of um, the Disney musical repertoire already, um, such as the Flubber Waltz, uh, which was from the absent-minded professor. Um, and then, like you said, the Serengeti Serenade, which would become uh, the theme song for 1967's The Jungle Book. Um, you know, it's funny when they had George Bruns in uh, kind of the concept meetings for the attraction. Um, he had actually fallen asleep um, during that meeting. And somebody elbowed him awake and said, George, wake up. This is what we're doing. And he immediately got up and started composing this music um, without really hearing, you know, the, the concept meetings that were happening uh, with the wed guys. Um, but the music is just absolutely fantastic. If you buy the five disc set for no other reason, um, you know, I have downloaded all of the songs from the uh, international gardens to my iPhone. And I just listen to them on the way to work just because it's such a fantastic set of songs. I, I think uh, we might share that same playlist, Andrew. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I listen to that pretty frequently. And, and actually some of those tunes have found their way on, on YouTube, I believe um, as well. But, um, but that, that um, the disc set that you're referencing, it also has just uh, just great liner notes about about the piece of the music and the pavilions itself. So I, I I can appreciate how you use that as a resource in the development of your books. Yeah, I wanted to make it as immersive as possible. You know, I, I absolutely love uh, background music and cue music from the parks. You know, I'm constantly playing that music in my classroom based upon what we're learning about that day. So for today. You know, my class was talking about the Old West and uh, you better believe I had Frontierland music playing in my classroom. So, um, you know, using all five senses in my books to bring these attractions into reality, uh, whether it's the food that the guests are eating, the smells that they're smelling on the attractions, 
um, the feeling of the leather seats that they're sitting on, the sights they're seeing, or even just the music and the sound effects. You know, I, I want to incorporate that into the book to, to create as realistic of a history as possible. Well, your students must be very lucky to have you if they get that, that uh, audio experience as well. Um, one other thing I'm just wondering, you obviously discovered a lot of really cool finds along the way. Is there any particular material or document or piece of knowledge that you gleaned over the course of writing tra Travel Magic that really stands out to you? You know, it was it was very exciting to me. Um, just any document, there's only probably two or three um, in this entire four binders um, that I was able to get in my research. But it was very special to come across uh, a few documents that were written by and signed by Walt Disney himself. Um, I remember sitting in the Benson Ford archives in Dearborn and, you know, you're in a library, so you've got to be quiet. Um, and I'm sitting there with my plastic gloves on because you can't touch archival material with your hands because the finger grease will ruin documents or whatever. And I remember seeing Walt's signature on the bottom of this document and becoming almost giddy uh, because I was holding in my hand something that was signed personally by Walt Disney. Um, and so, you know, just just seeing that and and realizing you know, this, this is real, you know, this was real history. This really happened. Walt was aware of what was happening with these, with these attractions. Um, you know, I also used a number of book resources um, that I would not have been able to flesh out the Disney side of the story without. Um, I got uh, Pete Doctor's excellent uh, two book set on Mark Davis, which has amazing concept art that Mark had created for the attraction. I've got a book by John Hench uh, that was written several years ago that kind of talks about how he had developed concept art for the World's Fair. Um, you know, I've got, um, oh, what's another book that I have about the World's Fair? Um, you know, there's, there's just so many great books. Um, I've got Rolly Crump's kind of a cute story. Um, that he talks about some some great um, experiences that he had and when he almost got fired or so he thought by Walt um, when he was dressing uh, a cave woman figure with Blaine Gibson. Um, so just those those stories really just kind of brought, you know, the Disney side of things to light that that the Ford documents didn't focus so much on. Oh, and that's as any good historian or researcher knows, that's where uh, that's where it's helpful to tri triangulate your methods to together a rich variety so you can help uh, develop a complete picture and, and to verify um, information as well. Andrew, what is, can I ask what's next in your journey as an author? Yeah, so I'm currently working on um, as a freelancer for um, WDW Magazine. Um, as a blogger for them, I, I write on occasion for DisneyLists.com. Um, I'm going to be honest, um, I'm kind of discouraged about the World's Fair series. Um, I have been in contact with the main archivist for General Electric, um, and I've been talking back and forth to him for the past couple of years, and he has informed me that there is nothing in the GE archives about Progress Land and the Carousel of Progress. Um, their archives is up in New York. 
um, in Schenectady, and he has sent me what he has. Uh, he made some scans. Some of them are things like uh, GE uh, annual reports and some photographs. But other than that, he assures me that there is nothing in the GE archives. So I'm having a really difficult time finding anything um, about progress land that is archival in nature. Um, that would be logically in my progression, the next book in the series, because that was the the next attraction that was developed for the World's Fair uh, with the It's a Small World attraction being the final book. So at this time, uh, unfortunately, the World's Fair series looks like it's going to be put on hold unless I have a break in the research process. Um, like I said earlier, um, I have started a book series, uh, a trilogy book series into the life of Walt Disney um, that I've actually looked at his life from a different angle than any other biography that I've come across has. Uh, that first book was published this past November, um, but uh, sometime probably in 2023, I plan on picking that series back up and doing the second in that three volume series um, about Walt's life. So um, definitely uh, look forward to that. Very cool. Can you can you provide a tease of what that second entry will be focused on? Yeah. So the first book in that series uh, kind of explored um, some of the family history. The first couple chapters focuses on the family history of Walt Disney. Uh, my my main uh, angle and lens through which I focus on Walt's story is not so much about uh, Walt himself, but how Walt inspired history and how history influenced Walt. Um, and so I look uh, kind of like we alluded to with travel magic, I look at the historical context of what's happening around Walt and in Walt's immediate vicinity and how that's actually going to influence the person that he became. Um, so the first book focused on his birth in 1901 through the birth of Mickey Mouse in 1928. Um, so kind of his, his beginnings in animation. Um, and his failures in Kansas City before he moved out to LA. Uh, book two will be focusing on um, his career in animation and film. So we'll likely focus on approximately from 1928 through 1955 or maybe even 1960 um, and focusing on his role in the animation and film world. And then book three would be focusing on uh, kind of the dusk of his life uh, focusing on the theme parks and some of his other projects like the New York World's Fair and um, the um, failed or uh, the ski resort up in Sequoia that never came to be things like the right. Olympics. So that's the kind of stuff that would then be in that third book. Well, that's fantastic, Andrew. I, I have no doubt folks will want to get a hold of, of those when they debut. Um, Let's wrap up with some just uh, general music and book questions that I ask my guests, as well as a random question. Uh, are you ready? Sure, let's go. All right. So, Andrew, on the music front, is there a Disney soundtrack that you listened to most while growing up? Hmm. Uh, so one of the first CDs that I ever received as a gift I got it for Christmas was the Tarzan soundtrack. So if I was going to pick a movie soundtrack that I listened to the most, it was probably that. Oh yeah. I was just listening to son of man yesterday. <laughs> Never gets old. 
Phil Collins is fantastic. Yeah. Oh, those, I mean, those songs have just such great replay value. <laughs> what, what Disney song most recently got stuck in your head? Mm, pretty much anything from Encanto. I think like 90% of the world's population right now. Um, I purchased Surface Pressure immediately after seeing uh, the film on Disney+. Plus, um, and I am intentionally not purchasing We Don't Talk About Bruno because I know that that would be on replay nonstop on my phone, and I don't want to do that to myself. That makes sense. Well, instead, you can just listen to George's, George Bruns' scores as you drive to work. So <laughs> what Disney film do you feel has the most underrated music? Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Really? Could you share more about why? Um, so it's just got a very distinct... Uh, feel to the soundtrack Um, you know you listen to some of the songs um, and you can just kind of feel it it sounds almost tinny um, in terms of how they would mute the trumpets um, and some of the orchestration that they would have um, in the different songs Um, I think the film itself is fairly underrated um, to the casual viewer you know we as Disney fans recognize why it was significant. Film historians recognize why it was, why it's significant. It's probably one of my favorite Disney films, not only because of its historical significance, uh, but just the artistry that went into it is just wonderful. You know, the, the, the colors, the animation um, as Disney is trying to kind of find its way um, into how to actually animate it. Um, you know, the music is wonderful. The words are, or there's not the words, the lyrics to the songs are great. Um, and just the way with which the music drives the story, story forward and, and tells the story of the film, uh, is just so important to the film itself. Oh yeah. I can appreciate that. Well, I mean, Churchill Smith and Harleen ultimately were the, the pioneers in in the world of Disney music during those formative years for the studio. So yeah, I I love that pick. A couple of book questions for you, Andrew. Um, What is the most recent Disney book that you have read? Mm. It's been a while since I've read a Disney book. Um, I would have to say probably the most recent Disney book or Disney themed book that I've read was one of the Kingdom Keepers books. Ah, those, yeah, that's def- that definitely has a strong fan base and Ridley Pearson's a dynamic individual. Yeah, well, for me, it, it kind of helps cure that Disney blues. Um, you know, living in North Carolina, I don't get down to Orlando as often as I would like. Um, and so the way that Ridley Pearson writes those books uh, really makes you feel like you're there, even if you're running away from the villains. Um, but it just kind of brings, uh, brings some of those memories back of being a teenager and running around Disney world myself. (laughs) Oh yes. Uh, yeah, I, I, I can see how that has an effect there. Um, another question, if you could Mind you, I realize you've already written a lot and you have more on the docket, but if you could write a Disney book on any topic, that you haven't already covered, what would it be about? So I would really, really enjoy writing a book about uh, Imagineer Joe Rohde. Um, In fact, I've thrown some ideas around about it, but something about his travels and how he 
uh, traveled the world. You know, he's he's a very well-traveled gentleman. Uh, he has gone to all the continents around the world and has uh, is 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 almost like a Disney anthropologist. Um, unfortunately, you know, he doesn't work for Disney anymore. Uh, he had recently retired and um, is working for someone else now. Um, but just the amount of of traveling that he has done um, and pulled different aspects of different cultures together in order to create uh, some of the most beloved Disney attractions from the 80s and 90s, even, you know, being almost the the father of Disney's Animal Kingdom. Um, you know, I think that would be a really fascinating book to kind of understand a, hit, a piece of the history of the Disney company that's not well explored or documented. Yeah, I could definitely see individuals finding that to be an interesting title because of Rhodey's profound influence. Um, also with Alwani too. I mean, he was responsible for that and um, the development of what will be White House Point for Disney Cruise Line. Um, yeah, that'd be really cool. Um, random question for you. So this is always different with each guest. Uh, and you can't answer uh, by saying one of the attractions at the World's Fair, but is there a Disney attraction that you have never experienced but would have loved to? Does it have to be an attraction that no longer exists? Uh, no, it could be, no, it could be a currently existing one if you'd like to answer it that way. Um, See, here on Notably Disney, we ask the tough questions. Yes, yes. Well, there's, you know, I've never been to any of the overseas parks. Um, and so I'm going to cheat a little bit and answer with Tokyo Disneyland and Tokyo Disney Sea. I know those aren't attractions necessarily, but everything that's over there just looks so amazing and so very detailed. Um, that I wish we had our own version of Disney Sea here in the States. I can see that. I have to ask you though, Andrew, is there a specific attraction that really, <laughs> really is on your mind? I think it would be cool to go on Journey to the Center of the Earth. Oh, um, yeah, that looks neat. Yeah, just because it's just so different. You know, it's a thrill ride, but it's also a dark ride. And, um, you know, it's inside of a, of a volcano before it erupts. And, I think that would be really cool to experience. Yeah, I, I, I'm with you there. I also think just um, I hear Pooh's Honey Hunt out at Tokyo Disneyland's pretty incredible. But now we have we have more of those track, trackless ride systems here in the States. So um, it's nice to see that we're getting some of that technology uh, here in the U.S. I will tell you that the Beauty and the Beast attraction, and I, was it Shanghai that just opened that new Beauty and the Beast attraction? No, no, that was Tokyo Disneyland. Was it? That, that looks pretty cool too. See, I've been trying to to keep myself from watching any of that footage if I ever find myself out there, but I also know that it will probably be a while. So <laughs> it does look neat though from the few images I've seen. Yes. Very good. Well, Andrew, um, how can listeners follow your work, follow you on social media, purchase your titles? Sure. So I'm kind of taking a little break from social media lately. Um, but if somebody is interested in finding me on Twitter, um, they can follow me at hist, H-I-S-T, tour, T-O-U-R-W-D-W. Uh, that's in reference to my book series, The Historical Tour of Walt Disney World. Um, and most actively, um, I have a author website, 
Um, it is www.keisthehistorian.com. Keist is spelled K-I-S-T-E. Um, on that website, I've got a number of resources. Um, there's an events page that I update on occasion that shows what I'm doing for author events in my spare time. Um, it's got a uh, page that kind of looks at all the different books that I've written and published as well as upcoming projects. Um, but the, the coolest part to me uh, of my website is that I have an interactive bibliography. Um, I'm actually in the process of scanning all four of these four inch binders of documents of my research from the Ford Motor Company and uploading them to my website so that people who are interested and want to follow along with the documents as they read the book are able to go and see those, including things like photographs and blueprints and uh, concept art um, that was developed uh, in preparation for the World's Fair. So um, that is available for both of my World's Fair books only. Um, Great Moments uh, has all of those documents uploaded. And like I said, I am in the process of working on the Ford notebooks as we speak. That's great. Well, and I must say that the fact that you are able to scan some of those materials and and have folks be able to access them. I think that is, it's a nice extension of the book and it's also great in just making it more accessible too. Yeah, and just in case anybody wants to, you know, create research of their own or or look at some of these photographs and, and kind of see Walt as he's unveiling the attractions or uh, perhaps look at the pavilions from a different angle. Um, you know, I've had college students that have reached out to me wanting to speak to me about my research and, and kind of pick my brain about some different topics. I've had somebody that's a, a postgraduate student in Germany that's reached out to me for assistance on his thesis uh, based upon some of the stuff that's on my website. So, you know, if nothing else, I want to put that information out there and make it more available to other historians now and in the future. I, I can appreciate that that love of learning and the notion of spreading it and making it entertaining too, which certainly honors uh, the legacy of Disney and informing and also entertaining. Andrew, your your book really truly is excellent. It's fascinating. I I couldn't put it down. And I think it's just going to be a very valuable resource for a variety of individuals, in addition to being um, just an enjoyable narrative of this time and place. Thank you so much for being on Notably Disney and appreciate your contribution to the the world of Disney books. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a a, a great pleasure speaking with you. And thank you so much to Andrew for joining me on Notably Disney. Once again, the book is called Walt Disney and the 1964 to 1965 New York World's Fair Travel Magic. You will probably be very tempted to read it from cover to cover because it is packed with fascinating stories and tidbits that you probably won't find most anywhere else. And as Andrew mentioned, what's wonderful about his website is that it includes some of the documents that you can view at your leisure. Thanks again for joining me on another episode of Notably Disney. I invite you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. Follow me on Twitter at bnachmanreports. That's B-N-A-C-H-M-A-N reports. And be among the first to find out about the release of new episodes. I also encourage you to send me an email to notablydisney at gmail.com regarding your thoughts of the show, as well suggestions for content. So until we turn the page on another chapter, I'm Brett, and thanks for listening to Notably Disney.
Notably, Disney is not affiliated with the Walt Disney Company or any of its subsidiaries. Consequently, the perspectives and opinions expressed by the host and guests are strictly theirs and do not represent the views of the Walt Disney Company and its employees. The main purpose of the Notably Disney podcast is to offer information and critiques about the Walt Disney Company.